know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. You tell them, Elizabeth. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. KTNF, we also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today for this special edition of the Bradcast. Well, in what CNN's typically overdramatic and sensationalized America Ninja Warriors style opening video described as a, quote, fight for the heart of the party, 10 Democratic 2020 presidential candidates took the stage for night one of debate two at the Fox Theater in Detroit, Michigan on Tuesday night. The video set the stage as Bernie versus Warren, Buttigieg versus Beto and progressives versus Heartland Values. All false premises that would be echoed throughout the night in hopes of ginning up confrontation or drama or ratings. Despite CNN's predictable showbiz made for cable TV, uh, cable TV opening and, and framing throughout the debate and attempts at forced confrontation and overly truncated time for candidate answers to often complicated and nuanced policy issues, the debate was ultimately actually substantive. I think, though we'll see if my guests agree with me on that score in a moment, even if it seemed to result in uh, eight or so of the 10 candidates attempting to take down Sanders and Warren while they seem more interested uh, themselves, Sanders and Warren, in taking down Donald Trump. Now, since we may not get another chance to mention the names of everybody on the stage during Tuesday's night one of the second presidential debate, and since many of them may not make it to debate three in September, 
where the DNC uh, requirements for inclusion will be a bit higher. Allow me to note the participants on Tuesday right now. They were author and spiritual guru Marion Williamson, former Maryland Congressman John Delaney, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, and in his first appearance on the Democratic debate stage, taking the place of California Congressman Eric Swalwell, who dropped out, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who won his current term as governor in Montana in 2016, the same year that Donald Trump otherwise won the state of Montana by about 20 points. Now, CNN curated uh, topics in the two and a half hour debate included health care, immigration, gun legislation, the climate crisis, issues regarding race, the economy, the cost of college and student loans, foreign policy and even nuclear weapons. And uh, one of many right wing memes that CNN seemed to be pushing throughout the night, whether the Democratic Party had moved too far to the left. Absent uh, from the discussion, however, were any questions regarding what I regard as the greatest national security threat to both the country and the world. That would be Donald Trump and how the candidates intend to take him on if they are able to win the nomination after Americans actually begin voting in about six months time, beginning with the Iowa caucuses the first week in February, followed by the New Hampshire primary a week later, Nevada caucus a week later, South Carolina primary on the final week of February. And then take note, just three days later, three days later, Super Tuesday, with about a dozen states casting votes, including California and Texas, in a wildly truncated voting period following, uh, well, what I would call an overly long early campaign season. One topic shamefully not raised by CNN once again, as our friend Ari Berman of Mother Jones observed on Twitter, as he does. 25 debates in 2016. And three in 2020 and still not a single question about the attack on voting rights. He added, if we don't fix our democracy, we won't fix our politics. That failure came during a debate in Michigan, of all places, a state that has been grotesquely gerrymandered by Republicans over the past decade to guarantee GOP majorities in the state legislature and in the U.S. House, despite all statewide offices for governor, attorney general, secretary of state now being filled by Democrats. And the debate was on the very same day in Michigan that Wisconsin's former governor, Scott Walker, filed a lawsuit to kill the state of Michigan's brand new state constitutional amendment approved by 61 percent of state voters last November that created an independent redistricting commission to create fairer political maps for the state. Finally, following the 2020 census, but Walker hopes to kill the state amendment. And of course, Michigan is a state where the public was not allowed to actually hand count the ballots that were cast there after the 2016 election to assure that Donald Trump actually won the state. 
as he narrowly, reportedly did, resulting in the state's electoral college votes going to the Republican candidate for the first time in decades. Nonetheless, there were zero questions at all, once again, on the continuing GOP attacks on our democracy. So with that whining out of the way, uh, hey, at least they spent a decent portion of the debate on the climate crisis, did they not, Desi Doyen? Yes, yes, they did. I'm not going to give CNN much credit for that, though, because of the quality of the questions. Uh, yeah, the questions were sort of couched as, why is the Green New Deal a terrible idea? Here, go attack somebody. Right, exactly. Uh, and that was just one of, of many questions from the CNN moderators that frankly seemed like they could have been written by the Republican National Committee to frame the narrative as they wanted it framed, rather than, you know, presenting policy ideas that Americans actually need to learn about. Pollster Matt McDermott quipped on Twitter after Tuesday's pageant, uh, quote, CNN debate summarized. Why does your health care plan screw the middle class? Why are you taking health care from hardworking Americans? Why are you for open borders? He said, imagine CNN asking in a Republican debate, Democrats want to ensure health care for all Americans. You want to kill people. Care to respond? Joining us to respond and hopefully make some sense of Tuesday night's Night one of debate two are a couple of our longtime favorite guests. Jackie Schechner is a longtime journalist and former producer at CNN. Before moving on to work as communications director for the nation's largest health care reform campaign during the Obama era and for Al Gore's climate reality project. She most recently worked on the Committee to Investigate Russia, which closed its doors at the end of the Robert Mueller investigation when uh, after, as you may have heard, Mueller totally exonerated Donald Trump. So Jackie <laughs> apologized and made amends by volunteering <laughs> With Trump's re-election campaign. Am I right about that last point, Jackie? I'm, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, no. no. not so much? All right. Well, welcome back. Nonetheless, also with us today is our Thank friend you. David Ferris, a contributor at The Week, associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He's also author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American politics. It has been too long, Mr. Ferris. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It's great to be here. You're you're not working for Trump's re-election campaign either, am I right? I've entertained offers, but I've decided to... <laughs> I see. All right. Well, uh, but by way of transparency, we always like full disclosure right up front during these types of shows. Uh, David, do you have a candidate that you are already pulling for or working for or or even working against, for that matter? Um, I, I would describe myself as Lean Warren, um, but I haven't made a final decision yet. All right. Um, I'm not working for anyone yet. <laughs> All right. He's a Lean Warren. Uh, Jackie Schechner, are you working for or otherwise in the tank for anyone at this stage? Other than Trump's re-election campaign, now. No, okay, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be yeah, fired. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean I've got people I think are doing a good job so far, but mm -hmm. um, I don't have anybody right now that I'm on board with. I haven't endorsed anybody, and, and don't intend to for a while. It's too soon. Gotcha. All right. Well, we'll get into some of the details and policy issues discussed in the debate in, in a bit. we got a bunch of clips to turn to uh, as helpful. But I kind of like to start with the big picture here before we drill down in the next segments. Uh, as noted, even with all of my complaints, 
I, I actually thought it was uh, ultimately a very substantive debate. How do you think your old employers at CNN did, Jackie? Did the American public ultimately learn anything uh, last night? Well, I think the problem was the style was troubled. I, I think that they should have dropped the 25 minutes of introductions and allowed the candidates to actually finish sentences. Mm. The problem was that they kept getting interrupted over the time constraints and people weren't allowed to finish a thought. And I think that does a disservice to the audience, and it obviously does a disservice to the candidates. You obviously don't want them to be able to go on and on and on. And at the same time, you've got to allow them to finish a thought. Otherwise, it's distracting, and you can't get a, a, a true grip on what anybody's trying to say. Um, I think that that off the top is difficult. It got a little bit better as the night went on. I think maybe they got some blowback from mm-hmm. the, uh, the powers that be that it wasn't resonating well. Um, but stylistically that was that was problematic and i don't i don't know if that because there were too many people on the stage um or if because they just felt like they needed to keep it moving but in trying to do so i think they moved too quickly through stuff that needed to be better explained you can't get into the substance and do policy without allowing people to explain what they mean and when you cut people off halfway through you're only getting part of the picture David, uh, even with my complaints, I, I do have some sympathy for producers trying to figure out how to carry these things off when there's, you know, 20 candidates over two nights, 10 people on the stage each night. Was it was this a, a step up or a step back from the NBC debate last month in Miami as far as what we were able to learn about the candidates in question? Or is that question itself uh, too low of a bar? Well, I mean, I think that the, I think the debate had the same problem that the, that the MSNBC debate had, which was that a lot of the questions that the candidates got got posed to them with a sort of right wing framing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think that in, in spite of that, um, we had a pretty substantive series of exchanges about about healthcare and immigration in particular. And I do think if you were an undecided Democratic voter going into the debate last night, that you probably did learn something about these candidates, um, and that that has some value. You know, if I'm the Democratic Party moving forward, I'd really consider just taking CNN and the cable networks out of this equation altogether, run your own debates, and then invite the networks to broadcast. And then I, I think that takes the, the sort of the, the mm. right-wing narrative out of it, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. That said, and, and yeah, that, that GOP framing, you know, are you in favor of open borders? Why is the Green New Deal a terrible idea? That will destroy America, you know. Is you there, want to raise taxes on the middle class? Yeah, ra- yeah raising taxes. <laughs> I mean, but is there something to the idea of previewing how a Democratic nominee might defend their positions in the general election? I mean, that seems to be, uh, you know, what they are going to do. Is is it a good idea to raise those uh, issues this early in the campaign? I mean, I, I think it's always good to be prepared for the line of attack that's going to come at you in the general election, right? And I think, you know, raising taxes on those class and, and taking private health insurance away from people, that's what the Republicans are going to say. I, I just think it's like, in these debates, and this, this happens in the presidential debates, too, in the general election, is you almost never see questions thrown at the candidates with a, with a more progressive or, or left framing, you know? Mm-hmm. Even the, the sort of progressive framing of the problem itself, of like, what's wrong with our healthcare system, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't come up. And so... You know, I don't, I don't know what the solution to that problem is, but it seemed to happen over and over again last night. And uh, I'd, I'd really like to see the party do something about that moving forward. Jackie, I... Uh, I think one of the problems, yeah. too, I, I was just going to add in here, I think yeah. one of the problems, too, is the media likes to frame a narrative before the night even gets started. So in addition to using right-wing talking points or framing questions from a right-wing perspective, there's also the media narrative being pushed that perhaps there's 
some great divide between the progressive side of the party and the mm-hmm. moderate conservative side of the party, and they like to create that that conflict that isn't necessarily there. And and the point that I wanted to make is that you know you had people who were generally very kind to each other. They're good people. They want to see uh, an improved America in terms of getting better education, uh, better access to quality health care. They wanted people to have a living wage. They want people to have safe communities. Like, they're all moving in the same direction. They have different plans on how to get there, Mm -hmm. but they're all heading down the same highway. And to talk about how there's going to be a five-car pileup when everybody seems to be moving and driving cautiously in the same direction uh, is is disingenuous. And And I think that we are at a point now where we need to make a huge distinction between where the Democrats are and where President Trump is. Yeah. And that's not the narrative that's playing out. No, and... and so you've got... Uh, well, uh, well, no, on that point, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there is... There is a divide uh, of sorts in the uh, in the Democratic Party. We did see it from some of the the candidates who are not polling as high as the other candidates who are, you know, more conservative. But even with even at that, even those more conservative candidates, you're right. A lot of their policies are not unlike those of the more progressive candidates. With that said, and the need to sort of hash out these policies, I guess, am I off base to feel that? This contest, frankly, must be about who can beat Donald Trump even more than about what anybody's particular policy proposals are. Yeah, because the nuances have to get through Congress. And frankly, what we need to do is just change the the tone completely. I mean, we've got the the way the country is going right now is incredibly dangerous, both internally and from a national security perspective on the international stage. So either you are uh, running against what we currently have and how dangerous it is, um, or you're not. And the nuances of policy, when you get into the weeds, aren't going to really matter that much if we don't get off the track wrong right now. And so it really does come down to who can be Donald Trump and who can move us back in a direction of civility and and goodness and kindness and working with our allies and all of the things that he's attempting to dismantle on a daily basis. Let me get David's... Um, yeah, let me, let me get David's thoughts on that on that similar point. But I want to play this clip here, which where where Jake Tapper sort of makes a similar point uh, to mine that Americans want someone who can beat Trump more than they care about any particular policy uh, uh, proposal. Let me, let me play that, and and then I'll get your thoughts, David. Democratic voters say that they want a candidate who can beat President Trump more than they want a candidate who agrees with them on major issues. Governor Hickenlooper. You ran a Facebook ad that warned, quote, socialism is not the answer. The ad also said, quote, don't let extremes give Trump four more years. Are you saying that Senator Sanders is too extreme to beat President Trump? I'm saying the policies of this notion that you're going to take private insurance away from 180 million Americans who many of them don't want to give it. Many of them do want to get rid of it, but some don't. Many don't. Or you're going to Uh, the Green New Deal makes sure that every American is guaranteed a government job if they want. That is a disaster at at the ballot box. You might as well FedEx the election to Donald Trump. The truth is that every credible poll that I have seen has me beating Donald Trump. And the reason we are going to defeat Trump and beat him badly is that he is a fraud and a phony and we're going to expose him for what he is. The American people want to have a minimum wage, which is a living wage, The American people want to pay reasonable prices for prescription drugs, not the highest prices in the world. I've helped lead the effort for that as well. 
David Ferris, I, I thought that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both showed how they intended to take on Donald Trump, and they did not shy away from their uh, from their policies. But did it get, as uh, Jackie suggested, too much into the weeds of policy versus how they uh, how the Democrats plan to take on Donald Trump? Oh, well, I mean, I don't think so. I, I think you know, for better or for worse. <laughs> We start this process so far in advance, and we have so many debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much airtime, and it's like they, they ultimately they're going to have to talk about their policy differences. A because I think they're important, and B because they, you know the candidates have to distinguish themselves from one another in some way, um, and convince voters to, to to tell pollsters certain things. Right? Mm-hmm. Like if this is just about who can beat Trump, then you know just cancel the debates, and we'll just uh, we'll look at polling numbers <laughs> right. on, on the eve of Iowa. We'll figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. I think that that part of the way that somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris can move their head-to-head polling numbers against Trump is to take the case directly to the voters via these debates. So I, I you know. I, I don't want things to get acrimonious, obviously, um, and of course I think all the candidates need to be careful to stress their shared antipathy to the president. Um, but I do think it's useful for for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, for example, to be able to um, to defend their 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 proposals, their Medicare for All proposals. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of watching along with interest. I mean, I, you know, um, I'm interested to hear what they have to say. I'm interested to see how they differ. And I think that's I think that's good. I think that's good for the party. And and how real is that divide that uh, Jackie mentioned and 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 I responded to and CNN was pushing all night? Is uh, how real is that divide among the electorate, David, between the uh, you know the so-called progressives and the so-called moderates, who I think are more accurately described as conservatives? And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just a, a difference sure. that you hear in Hickenlooper saying, "Oh, we're going to lose if we go that direction." Sanders. Uh, Warren and and Buttigieg and others saying we need to go in in this more progressive uh, uh, direction. How real is that divide among the electorate, and is it something that the candidates should be as concerned about as apparently CNN is? <laughs> I mean, I think I think there's a real divide. I think there's a real divide in the in the Democratic primary electorate, and then there's a real divide in the public at large about whether we want to preserve some aspects of a of a private health care insurance system. Or whether we want to move to to a single payer operation, um, and I, I think that those are important distinctions to litigate. I think one thing that everyone is kind of forgetting is that you know, like let's say that it is Elizabeth Warren, it's Bernie Sanders, or it's Kamala Harris, somebody pushing some version of what they're calling Medicare for all. The reality is, like, given what we know about partisanship, and given what we know about how party leaders influence the rank and file. A year after they're nominated, probably almost every Democrat in the country is going to say whatever that person is saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so I think that um, in the primary, this early in the primary in particular, I don't see I don't see anything wrong with a sort of like fighting for your vision of what you think the healthcare reform should look like, because in all reality, you know, that's the that's the reform that you'll push when you're president, um, and that's the that's the reform that your voters will eventually say that they want to see. You know, whether that makes it through Congress, <laughs> completely different question, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think that there's value to having the party leader have a very clear vision um, and, to, and to bring the rest of the party along with them. And we'll, and we'll get into some of those uh, weeds and some of those uh, policies uh, after a quick break here. But before we get to that break, Jackie Schechner uh, did, sticking to the big picture thing here for the moment, uh, on night one of debate two, did anybody or anything surprise you last night? Um. You know, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, I think Elizabeth Warren did a really good job. I think Bernie Sanders did better this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I'm not 
surprised by the buzz around Marianne Williamson. I just wish people would stop considering her to be a possible serious contender. And I don't say that because I don't think she's a lovely person. I've met her. I think Mm -hmm. she's perfectly lovely and wonderful. And I like the love and the kindness and the goodness that she espouses. But she's not going to be the Democratic nominee. And I think any discussion or airtime at this point that places her as a potential viable front-runner candidate, whatever it is the cable networks are espousing today, is a waste of, of energy. And I think it's to fill airtime. And so the surprise to me is how quickly people are willing to follow the yell of squirrel <laughs> and uh, go off in that direction. I think there are other more important things to be focused on. Um, and she won't be on the debate stage the next time around. I, I mean, I'd be surprised. You sure? Are you sure she won't be? I, I'd be surprised. Okay. I'd be very surprised. I mean, maybe she will be, but it, it wouldn't be for lack of help from some sort of bot and troll. I, I really firmly believe that she could be used as a foil a la Jill Stein, uh, and that concerns me. David, uh, any particular uh, surprises for you from anybody or anything last night? I mean, I guess I'm surprised by how incoherent John Hickenlooper is. Dude <laughs> 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 um, just can't stay on topic for more than two seconds. I, I thought he was the only person who had a really bad night, you know, and, and usually in a debate with 10 people, you know, there's clear winners and losers. I thought, you know, I thought most people did fine. Uh, I think most people probably did what they intended to do before they got up on stage. I, I thought something. He's like a, a key exception to that. Right. Uh, I, I don't think he articulated his case very well. Gotcha. All right. Let's take a quick break here, and we'll come back with our special coverage of night one of the 2020 Democratic debate number two from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, that continues as we'll dive into some of the actual substance from Tuesday night with Jackie Schechner, David Ferris, and Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. This isn't just a choice between the left and the center. It's not a choice just between sort of these wish list economics or thinking that we have to sacrifice our values to actually win. Real solutions, not impossible promises. These radical changes, fairy tale economics. Wish list economics. Why do we have to be so extreme? And I want to get things done. People can't wait. That farmer getting hit right now by Trump's trade wars, that teacher working a second job just to afford her insulin. They can't wait for a revolution. Eventually, in 15 years, you could get there, but it would be an evolution, not a revolution. You say you want a revolution, well, you know. You know, welcome back to the broadcast. That was a bunch of candidates on the stage Tuesday night in Detroit at night one of CNN's 2020 Democratic presidential debate, poo-pooing the idea that plans from certain Democrats for big programs like Medicare for All, free college tuition, a Green New Deal, and more were just too radical for American voters and, more to the point, too impossible to actually carry off promises that can never be kept. 
this is our special coverage today with of the uh, of the night one of the debate with journalist Jackie Schechner and political science professor and author David Ferris. As with the uh, Miami debate on NBC last month, the topic of health care reform took up a huge chunk of the beginning of the debate uh, with what seems uh, to my ears anyway, a lot of nuance that would be up to Congress anyway, frankly. And uh, as CNN seemed to do all night, uh, GOP framing of the entire matter, such as forcing candidates to explain whether their health care plans would result in higher taxes on middle class families. Uh, This exchange with Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, former Congressman John Delaney and Senator Elizabeth Warren right at the top seemed to sort of set the stage. Let me play this clip and then I've got a number of questions about it for my guests. Congressman Delaney just referred to it as bad policy and previously he has called the idea political suicide that will just get President Trump reelected. What do you say to Congressman Delaney? You're wrong. (laughs) Right now, We have a dysfunctional health care system, 87 million uninsured or underinsured, 500,000 Americans every year going bankrupt because of medical bills, 30,000 people dying while the health care industry makes tens of billions of dollars in profit. Five minutes away from here, John, is a country. It's called Canada. They guarantee health care to every man, woman, and child as a human right. They spend half of what we spend and by the way when you end up in a hospital in canada you come out with no bill at all health care is a human right not a privilege i believe that i will fight for that thank you senator sanders congressman delaney well i'm right about this we can create a universal health care system to give everyone basic health care for free and i have a proposal to do it But we don't have to go around and be the party of subtraction and telling half the country who has private health insurance that their health insurance is illegal. My dad, the union electrician, loved the health care he got from the IBEW. He would never want someone to take that away. Half of Medicare beneficiaries now have Medicare Advantage, which is private insurance or supplemental plans. It's also bad policy. It'll underfund the industry. Many hospitals will close, and it's bad policy. Senator Sanders. The fact of the matter is, Tens of millions of people lose their health insurance every single year when they change jobs, when their employer changes that insurance. If you want stability in the healthcare system, if you want a system which gives you freedom of choice with regard to doctor or hospital, which is a system which will not bankrupt you, the answer is to get rid of the profiteering <coughs> of the you, drug companies and the insurance companies moved to Medicare for all. But now he's talking about a different issue. What I'm talking about is really simple. We should deal with the tragedy of the uninsured and give everyone health care as a right. But why do we got to be the party of taking something away no, from people? No one is the party. Okay, hold, hold That's on what second, they're Senator. running on. They're no. running on telling half the country that your health insurance is illegal. It says it right in the bill. All right, thank we you. don't have to do that. We can give everyone health care okay. and allow people to have no. choice. That's the American way. Look, thank you, Congressman. Senator Warren. So look, let's, let's be clear about this. We are the Democrats. We are not about trying to take away health care from anyone. That's what the Republicans are trying to do. And we should stop using Republican talking points in order to talk with each other about how to best provide that health care. Uh, Jackie Schechner, I, I was really looking forward to having you on today since I know that you spent a lot of time working for the nation's largest health care reform campaign during the Obama era. 
mm-hmm. this came up in the last debate as well, this idea of the necessity of banning private insurance under a Medicare for All style plan. Why is that necessary? And if Medicare for All, you know, is so much better, won't the private insurance industry simply wither on the vine as 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 people find it to be unnecessary? Yeah, I mean, I this is such a complicated topic, and this is why getting into the weeds. Well, you have fifteen seconds. Go. Yeah, right. And then you cut me off. Um, it's it, it's so complicated, <laughs> but the idea is when you use words like taking away from, banning, making it illegal, you do play right into the GOP talking points, and you're basically giving uh, Republican ad makers all sorts of fodder for today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at one point, I, I, I think my thought was, you know, Delaney as a Republican in disguise, because when you speak like that, that's, that's exactly what you're doing, is giving them ad fodder. Um, here, here's the way I, I like to look at it. President Obama campaigned on a mix of a public and private system. Mm-hmm. He campaigned on introducing a public option into the mix so that people could choose from it if they wanted. They could keep their private insurance if they wanted. That was what he campaigned on, and that's what our campaign effort pushed for, is to get him to include the public option in the exchanges so that people would have the choice, and mm-hmm. that would compete with the private insurance. That ended up being a very heavy lift, and the president ended up abandoning it to get the Affordable Care Act through Congress. Now, a lot of people argued we should have started with single-payer, and then if we had to come to the middle, we came to the middle. Mm-hmm. But single-payer was a non-starter at the time, and you weren't going to even get people to the table to come to the middle. So there was no going there. Um, we tried to start with the public option, and then we know where that landed. So I, I think it's a, a very large discussion that needs to be had about not only what's, what's best for the country financially and from a taking-care-of-people perspective, but what's also politically viable. I'm just not sure that conversation needs to be happening right now because I don't think it's up to whoever the candidate is. They can advocate for whatever they want, but what you're going to get through Congress is going to be a totally, it's not going to look anything like what they're advocating right now. Mm -hmm. And what we're proponents for, everybody on that stage is an advocate for, is fixing the health care system. So whether that means building on the Affordable Care Act or building on the Affordable Care Act by moving it closer to single-payer more quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the nuance we're talking about. Nobody's talking about scrapping the Affordable Care Act and starting over. Well, what they're talking about is, is trying to, to push uh, in a direction that we've already started. Um, and I'd love to know, all of the people who are now advocating for a public option, how they intend to do what Obama was, was unable to do. But, doesn't the be- like d- but don't the Medicare for All plans uh, put forward by Bernie, in fact... And uh, do they actually ban private insurance? I think in an ideal system, you would you would get a single payer system in the mix that would look like other countries have. Mm-hmm. But it's not. I mean, let's be realistic. Like that's not going to happen. You're not going to wipe out the private insurance industry in one fell swoop. There may be an incremental way to get there, um, but it's just not going to happen. The country's not going to stand for it. It's not. It's not politically viable. It may be good policy down the line, but it's not politically viable. Well, I'm so you, you can advocate for it. Um, and I, look, I, I think single payer is really smart. And I think you have, you know, you spend less money and you have better outcomes. I'm, I'm totally for it. Um, but I don't, I don't, I think it's too heavy a lift. Um, but I don't think naysaying it is the way to go. I can, think you can, you can advocate all of it. 
but be realistic about what you're going to be able to put into place. Well, let me ask you another impossible question to answer in 30 seconds. So good luck here. Uh, The difference, what is the actual, and I don't even know if this is possible to explain in 30 seconds, but what is the actual difference between a public option, which the uh, more conservative Dems seem to uh, push for, versus Medicare for all, which is called for by folks like Sanders and Warren and, and some of the more progressive candidates? Well, there's the idea of like a national health care system where you don't have private insurance companies. Just everybody has, you, you end up, the middle class doesn't get hit as hard. Uh, there, there ends up being higher taxes in order to pay for access to medical care that is paid through your taxes. So you're not, there's no private insurance company. You don't have to get health insurance. You're just automatically covered. You get sick, you go to the doctor, and there's no bill, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's a single-payer system. When you start to talk about a public option, what you talk about is keeping private health insurance and then introducing um, a public option, which would be like a Medicare-type health insurance system, which people can choose to buy into. So I can shop from Aetna, United, mm-hmm. whatever you know the health care plans are, Blue Cross Blue Shield, or let's call it Government A. I mean, it's not run by the government, but it's a Medicare-type system. A single, the government pays for it, um, and it's, it's a choice. And mm-hmm. if you turn around and you say, okay, you know, I can go see this doctor and pay this much, or, you know, the private insurance pays this, it, mm-hmm. it's a comparison. You give people something to compare to. And Medicare has less overhead, um, and they don't have advertising the way that the private insurance companies do, and they don't have huge corporate salaries. And so there, there tends to be less money turning into the system, and so you can cut costs. Gotcha. So it's complicated in healthcare policy, but essentially you're giving people, it's a way to phase out private health insurance if they can't compete. And I was oh. going to say, essentially what happens now is the private insurance companies compete to see how much the market will bear. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not like another commodity. Like, you need healthcare. You need to go to the doctor when you're sick. When you break your arm, you don't then get on the phone and shop for the cheapest cap. Right, you go to the nearest emergency room and get your broken arm taken care of. Okay. So people are at the mercy of access to health care, and that's what the insurance companies take advantage of. Okay, so go let ahead. me see well, if... Go ahead, Des. I just want to make sure I understand this. So Medicare for all is nobody pays for premiums anymore. It's all paid through your taxes, and you supposedly pay less, according to all of these studies, than we're all paying right now, versus a public option is you still shell out of your personal wallet to Correct. pay for it, Correct. but you just have somebody who's not a private insurer. Right, and if you pay less because you're more competitive. So it's and and they'll they'll set the actual cost of what things cost. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, because everything's inflated right now. I mean I, I you look at your private health insurance, I mean it's the cost they compete against each other and the costs go up every year. But nobody's doing an analysis of actually how much the services cost because I can have I, I can have a, a procedure done, you know, a, a block from my house right. and I can go into the next City and the procedure costs four times as much. It's not about the actual but, but cost. You, it's more about what right. the market will bear. I just uh, learned more and, from Jackie just yeah. now than from that entire long healthcare <laughs> exchange where they were conflicted <laughs> with each other on CNN. But let me, the, but let me ask, one, and I appreciate that, but let me add one more thing. Yeah. We're arguing the nuances of this yeah. when the guy in the Oval Office yep. has said, we're going to get you big, beautiful healthcare that's going to be cheaper and better and it's going to be great. Right. And that's he, it. Yeah. That's all he said. That's all he said, and that's all he's done. He hasn't actually done anything. So, no, I agree with you. I think it was a, you know, an interesting and zesty debate, but to some extent, I, I, I am left wondering why have it at all 
right. you know, because for, if nothing else, a president does not actually decide these things, although presidential campaigns often do as uh, sort of mandates are developed. Uh, David Ferris, as the author of Time to Fight Dirty, which details big ideas for uh, a lasting progressive majority in America. Delaney, in that clip I played, uh, and others throughout the night, seem to suggest that these big ideas are just too radical, scary for America. Is he, A, right about that, and B, even if he's not right, won't the GOP work their propaganda magic in uh, in making him right anyway? Yeah, absolutely they will. And I'm glad you asked about Delaney, because Delaney is full of it. Okay, look. In the, in the debate, he said, I'm going to create universal health care that will be free. Mm-hmm. Okay? And if you go to his website, his, his health care plan says, create a new public health care plan for all Americans under the age of 65 while preserving traditional Medicare. Um, and, and everyone under 65 would be automatically enrolled in this plan. And that's what, <laughs> that's what <laughs> Medicare for all is, right? So he's lying when he says he's not endorsing Medicare for all. He's calling it something else. But his reform is, is looks actually pretty similar to the one that Kamala Harris just put out. It's, mm-hmm. it's different from the Bernie Sanders plan in the, in the sense that it, it preserves a, a private insurance market. But I think the reality is, like, I don't think that we're I, – I agree with Jackie. Like, the private insurance is not going anywhere anytime soon, right? Um, there will be a transition period. So anyway, I, I just wanted to get that, that yeah. out in the open about, about Delaney because I, I don't think he's telling the truth about his own plan, and I think he's trying to distinguish himself – from Warren and Sanders in a kind of a disingenuous way. And also, no, he spent $15 million of his own money to, to be polling at like 1% at this point. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. And he's a, he's a former... I don't think wants to hear from John Delaney. He's a former healthcare executive as well, as I, uh, as I understand it. Uh, I, I think this... Yeah, he's like the rich guy who thinks he's the president, you know, which is fine. Yeah. I think uh, this, uh, this... Really? 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 There's rich guys who think they should just be president? Uh, exactly. Oh, no. uh, I... I <laughs> I think, yeah, instead of like, uh, you know, helping voters vote in uh, in Florida, but we'll get to Tom Steyer another time. Anyway, I, I think that this quick exchange between spiritual advisor Marion Williamson and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, which came up during the health care discussion uh, as some of the more conservative candidates were explaining how no kind of single payer could possibly work or ever get passed. I think this is actually somewhat illustrative of, of the point both of you seem to be making here. I do have concern about what the Republicans would say, and that's not just a Republican talking point. I do have concern that it will be difficult. I have concern that it will make it harder to win, and I have concern that it will make it harder to govern, because if that that's our big fight. Thank you, then the Republicans will so shut I us want to bring down in on Mayor everything Buttigieg. Else. Mayor Buttigieg, it is time response. to stop worrying about what the Republicans will say. Look, yes. if, if, if it's true that if we embrace a far-left agenda, they're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. If we embrace a conservative agenda, you know what we're, they're going to do? They're going to say we're a bunch of crazy socialists. So let's just stand up for the right policy. Go out there and defend it. So he makes, uh, I think, a good point. But, David, I don't know if you actually answered my my question. Are these ideas too radical for the for the public to accept? Will this end up hurting somehow the Democrats chance of uh, of getting this national planetary menace out of the Oval Office? No, I, I, I don't think they're too radical. And, and I think that Mayor Pete had one of the best moments of the night there mm-hmm. um, when he very accurately says that no matter what policy proposals Democrats put forward, it's going to be caricatured. And if you remember back during the Obamacare debate itself, mm-hmm. um, when it was going through Congress, you know, we had this, this hysterics about death panels and just nonstop 
attacks on Fox News, and that's that's coming at us whether we choose Medicare for all and eliminate all private insurance or whether we just go with the public option. I think it's also worth noting my only person who seemed really wanted to attack Medicare for all on policy was Delaney. Everybody else is sort of saying this thing like, uh, it's too risky, you know, mm-hmm. impossible promises, Klobuchar is like, we don't want to promise too much. And if you, if you listen to the case that people make for the public option, this came up a little bit earlier in our conversation, the idea is that the public option would be so great and would be so efficient that eventually it would phase out private insurance altogether. Mm-hmm. And so, so all, everybody but, but, but Delaney seems to think that that's, that's where we should be heading, right? Um, and to think that Republicans will not attack it as such, I think it's just it's delusional. You know, I mean, if, if Joe Biden wins the nomination and he campaigns on a public option, Trump and Fox News and everyone is going to talk nonstop about a government takeover of health care. Uh, they're going to say that it will destroy the private insurance industry. They're going to say it'll take take your health care away. They'll talk about losing your doctor. And so those attacks are coming at us, whether we choose options A, B, or C. And so I think one of the most important things in the debate season and the primary season is to figure out, you know, what what is the best policy? I mean, I, I don't think it's irrelevant, you know, because when when Obama and, and, and Hillary Clinton were debating in 2008, 2007, 2008 about mm-hmm. health care, you know, Obama ended up with a, with a fairly similar policy to the one that he campaigned on. I mean, ironically, he adopted uh, the, the, the mandate, the individual mandate, which he campaigned against. Um, so there's always room for a maneuver once you're elected president. But I, but I don't think that there's necessarily no value in, in having a candidate make a pretty strong policy case. So, yeah, I, I, again, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, I'm a policy wonk, so I, I love this debate. <laughs> right. and I think it's really interesting. I do think that there's room for a candidate to say something very different from any of these folks are saying. Interestingly, some of the more successful European systems, I'm sure Jackie knows more about this than I do, but some of the more successful European systems um, rely on not-for-profit insurance, um, and they sort of cap out-of-pocket expenses very, very low, you know, like $300 or something. And so I think that there's room for a, a candidate to make a splash here by saying, like, not Medicare for all, not public option, not the status quo, this other thing that's mm-hmm. better. <laughs> And I'd also like to see the uh, these moderate candidates, I know they're trying to distinguish themselves, but I'd like to see them not negotiate with themselves, not put forth yeah. the, uh, the the more reduced policy concept, uh, because that's going to get whittled away. Well, look, I mean, Donald Trump won on making a bunch of promises he had no intention of keeping. So if you talk about Democrats fighting back, like, you know, Klobuchar says something like, we don't want to overpromise, maybe promise a little. Like, <laughs> you right. don't have to overpromise, but, like, maybe think bold and big and say it. Yeah. Because you never know what you're going to be able to achieve once you get into office. you got to get into office. And I'm not saying lie to the American people the way Donald Trump did, but one of the reasons he, he won is because he made a bunch of promises, things that people thought they wanted to see. And so I, I just think on the, the progressive side, there's room to maneuver there, like, Go for it. Yeah, and that actually brings me to, uh, well, I want to get uh, get both of your thoughts on this. But again, David uh, actually wrote a book about these big ideas. And Pete Buttigieg actually brought several of them up here. Uh, David, these could have come straight out of your book, Time to Fight Dirty. <laughs> this was in response to the need to get money out of politics. Uh, I believe it originally was, uh, was part of the debate about what to do about inaction on guns. Thanks to the political power of the NRA and their millions of campaign dollars, uh, here's Pete Buttigieg. Of course we need to get money out of politics. But when I propose the actual structural democratic reforms that might make a difference, end the Electoral College, amend the Constitution if necessary to clear up Citizens United, have D.C. actually be a state, and 
depoliticize the Supreme Court with structural reform, people look at me funny, as if this country were incapable of structural reform. Does anybody really think we're going to overtake Citizens United without constitutional action? This is a country that once changed its constitution so you couldn't drink, and then change it back because we thank, changed our minds about that. You. And you're telling thank me you, we Mayor. can't reform our thank democracy you. in our time? <laughs> thank you, Mayor. We have to, so, or we'll be having Governor the same Bullock, argument 20 years from now. <laughs> is, uh, 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 David, I think uh, each of those things was a chapter of your book, if I'm not mistaken. Is anybody else in this race actually calling for changes to the Constitution for all of these big ideas that they say the Democrats are calling for, and they are calling for big ideas, but Mayor Pete here is actually describing a number that I don't hear others uh, others talking about, expanding the judiciary, making D.C. a state. Uh, are, are these things doable under a Democratic president, David? Sure. I mean, some of them are, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the I think Mayor Pete read my book, and he's won't admit it. <laughs> Someone's talking about the title. Yeah. Um, has but, anybody uh, asked him? I bet he has. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Which <laughs> is fine. That's fine. Uh, I'm really I'm glad he's in the race, and mm-hmm. I'm glad that he's he's raising structural reform as a big challenge for our political system. I mean, it impacts more than D.C. statehood. It impacts more than Supreme Court. It's also about voting rights, um, voting reform, civil rights. And I, so I think he's he's right um, to point to the Supreme Court as a problem for this agenda. He's right to kind of, you know, subtweet Bullock by saying, you know, you can't just like wish Citizens United away. You need a, you need a constitutional amendment or mm-hmm. you need a different ruling from, from the Supreme Court. Um, and that's sort of where the ideas in my book come in, which is, um, I'm also very skeptical that we're going to get constitutional amendments through on any of these hot button issues anytime soon. Because the reality is the bar is so high to amend the Constitution that anything that has any perceived partisan impact is pretty much DOA with our current politics, right? So you need reforms that can be passed by, by a simple law, passed by, you know, Democratic-controlled House and Senate, and then signed by a Democratic president. Oh. Um, and that could be expanding the size of the Supreme Court. That could be D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. Um, all, of, all things that are, that are good, that we should do, that are, that are morally right, but also help to reinforce Democratic power against the inevitable backlash a couple of years later. Or, as Bernie Sanders describes it, a political revolution. Let's take a quick break here, and we will come back with uh, Jackie and David and Desi for our final uh, few minutes here on the broadcast. Special coverage of the Democratic debate number two, night one from Detroit. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. I think when we have a guy in the White House that has now told over 10,000 lies, that we better be very straightforward with the American people. What I don't like about this argument right now, what I don't like about it at all, is that we are more worried about winning an argument than winning an election. And I think how we win an election is to bring everyone with us. And yes, I am one in a state Every single time, statewide, I have won those congressional districts that Donald Trump won by over 20 points. And I've done it by getting out there and talking to people, by knowing rural issues and farm issues, and bringing Metro people with me in the state that had the highest voter turnout in the country. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, 
<laughs> Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Special coverage of the Democratic debate out of Detroit, night number one. And, you know, I, I, I like Amy Klobuchar. I wish she'd get her messaging right on hand-marked paper ballots instead of backup paper ballots, as she says. But I like her. But it seems to me at this point, a lot of the folks still on the stage are running for vice president at this point at best. Uh, speaking with uh, Jackie Schechner and David Ferris. Uh, Jackie, how long should folks like that stay in the race? Does it hurt the Democrats' chances somehow if they remain in until, you know, at least voting begins in February? I think so. I think it's time to whittle it down and let's get the real contenders uh, facing off against each other. I think separating out the likely uh, candidates at this point, or the, the likely nominees, um, isn't doing us any any favors. I mean, I, I get it. You want to be as inclusive as possible, but we, the next one needs to be everybody who's a possible uh, president or vice presidential nominee needs to be on the same stage together. I David, you got, uh, David, you got a thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd like to see the field winnowed to to at least ten as, as soon as possible. You know, we we have essentially a, a plausible field of you know maybe seven or eight at the most candidates, and we're still having twenty person debates. And that means there's a lot of extraneous people on stage, sort of taking time away from the contenders who I think could be having more substantive debates in front of the audience if, if it wasn't for like you know we had to turn over time to Marianne Williamson to talk about dark psychic energy or whatever <laughs> so I'm all for whittling this field down for sure <laughs> uh, War well Elizabeth Warren may have had the line of the night uh, here I think it's worth playing as we as we move forward go ahead play that I remember when people said Barack Obama couldn't get elected shoot I remember when people said Donald Trump couldn't get elected but here's where we are I get it. There is a lot at stake and people are scared. But we can't choose a candidate we don't believe in just because we're too scared to do anything else. And we can't ask other people to vote for a candidate we don't believe in. Democrats win when we figure out what is right and we get out there and fight for it. I am not afraid. So I think Democrats win when we run on real solutions, not impossible promises. When we run on things that are workable, not fairy tale economics. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. <laughs> Hell of a line. Uh, Jackie, after the last debate, I got the sense uh, in watching Kamala Harris with all her flaws. Uh, particularly as a prosecutor in California, which I think will be coming out as as she rises. I got the sense, however, from uh, from Harris that at least she could stand up to Donald Trump. Did Elizabeth Warren meet that bar last night as you see it, or or has he been successful in uh, sort of irreversibly labeling her? Oh, this is going to get me in so much trouble if I say what I really think. Good, do it. it Go ahead. (laughs) Here's the thing. I like Elizabeth Warren a lot. Mm-hmm. I think she's really smart. I think she's well-prepared. I think she would be an excellent president. I think that Donald Trump has done a very good job of branding her. Mm-hmm. And I think undoing that damage is challenging. And I, the performance optics aspect of it matter in the day and age that we're in right now when you're up against Trump. And I think that there's going to be some people who find her shrill. 
I know this is going to get me in trouble because it's going to sound really sexist. <laughs> um, it's going to be something. No, and I, and I say that with the mm-hmm. utmost adulation and respect for her and what she's accomplished, and I think she's great, and I think she'd be really great for us, and I'm, I'd, be, I'd be very happy to support her. Um, I just worry. I worry about the branding, and I worry that people are going to pick some superficial stuff and attack her on it. And, and, and I, I'm afraid that Trump has laid the groundwork for that. So we need to figure out what the message is that neutralizes him, and that he, neutralizes the attack. And this after a clip where she says, uh, we cannot be afraid. Uh, of course, uh, Jackie, you'll be back with us uh, tomorrow to uh, to face the pain for that comment. But let me get I know, since I know, I know. No, 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 it's all right. No, I, and I'm, I'm kidding, of course. I think it's, it's just fine. Uh, so let me get David Ferris's thoughts on that same thing, since I think you said you were sort of leaning Warren. Did, did she uh, make the case that she can, in fact, stand up to Donald Trump last night? I think she did, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, you see this poll just out, uh, Warren at 20%, just, just behind Biden at 26 That's The Economist. I think that what she's done over the last few months, uh, actually, is I think that she's successfully fought back against Trump's branding of her. You know, I think when she announced she, she wasn't doing so great after that initial bump, um, and I think as, as voters have gotten a longer look at her, um, I think they see someone who, who isn't, you know, the Trump caricature for her, who, who I, you know, I don't find her shrill. I think that she's, uh, she's very good at debating. I think that she can jab with the best of them, um, just as, as Kamala Harris can. So... Uh, that's not to say I've, I've made my choice, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I do think the, the debates themselves are part of my decision process, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a there's a really good case to be made that Kamala Harris would would be great <laughs> right on stage, um, going head to head with with Trump. So, uh, but I I, I do think um, that we shouldn't make this decision right now based on who we think mm-hmm. will will beat the president. You know, I, I think that again, I do think the party will consolidate behind whoever the nominee is. If you if you think back on recent history, I think the times that Democrats have won, you know, Obama and Clinton, right, mm-hmm. have been the times that we chose the candidate who was electrifying, rather than the candidate, the sort of the, can, the, the, the consensus candidate, the establishment candidate. Um, and I, you know, I like Hillary Clinton. Okay, so I'm not bashing Hillary Clinton, but uh, I do think that that Gore, Kerry, and Clinton had something in common, um, and that you know Warren and Harris and, and Sanders have something that Biden does not have. And I think that something is really important in the general And that, yeah, that something is they all are able to electrify uh, the crowds. Uh, We're going to have to leave it there for now, as they say on CNN. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) and of course, uh, David, you don't think she's shrill because you're not a sexist like Jackie Schechner. (laughs) You can find you can find uh, Jackie Schechner on the Twitters at Jackie Schechner, and you can find uh, David Ferris on the Twitters as well. David M. Ferris, uh, author of the book "It's Time to Fight Dirty: How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics." Jackie Schechner will be back with us tomorrow, sexist or otherwise. Uh, I want to thank you both for joining us today. Greatly appreciate it, guys. Oh yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> but we'll find out tomorrow. Until then, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. As ever, my thanks to those of you who stopped by Bradblog.com slash donate. To keep us on your public airwaves day in and day out, drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.